best like an artist. There's this bad equation out there that, well, you'll do it for cheap if you love what you do. As in loving what we do, how we spend our time, how we work, what we think, is, is somehow money in the bank, and it's just not. Episode 3, now streaming at investlikeanartist.com. Welcome to Invest Like an Artist, helping creatives get the knowledge they need for the life they want. Hosted by Candace G. Wiley of The Watering Hole Poetry. This is Invest Like an Artist Show 3, demystifying finances and investing for artists and creatives of all kinds. If you're looking to learn how to empower yourself financially without wading through complicated jargon, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to continue the conversation online using the hashtag invest like an artist. I met um, Lisa when she was the director of Artist Inc. in Kansas and, and for the entire middle region of the country and we spoke the same language in terms of what artists need to know and don't know, like some ways to think differently about art. Um, and by language I mean all the way down to the terminology, like some people have these theoretical ideas, but Lisa was like, no, if you look at this and this, and she was throwing terms at me, and I was like, those are business terms. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so I, I knew she had to uh, talk to some people here because of the kinds of concerns we, we saw in the, the first meeting. So Lisa, do you want to jump in and kind of tell us about yourself and the way you work and the way you think about this? Well, thanks for having me, Candace. Yeah, no, Candace and I were like, Oh my gosh, you're thinking about this too. So um, I ran the artist program for five years. They actually went through the artist program artist several years before that um, and did some work. I spent, uh, I, I've spent, I've had a long career in administration and uh, worked sort of tangentially with artists, but um, I've worked really with artists, individual artists, observing, listening to them, and helping them guide them through a process. Figuring out all of these things in terms of building a sustainable career and a practice. Um, and so when Candace told me what he was up to, I said that's great because the RSC program was all built on um, artists helping artists. That there and we used to run the program out of the innovation center at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, with all these small business training programs. And the small business training programs just weren't working for artists because they didn't they didn't speak to artists. They didn't understand how artists work. We actually sort of adapted those things and truthfully probably do a better job of supporting and training uh, small business people because in essence every artist is their own small business and will be their own small business for their entire life career. And um, at some point you know, need to make room and space in their brain to think about themselves that way. And that's hard because I think a lot of people have, a lot of artists have strong responses to the word business and to the word money. Candace, I have a little, I have a few slides because what I wanted, what I wanted to sort of introduce and then have a conversation about is um, talking about money because, um, and, and the word investment. And, and, all the ways we think about it and, and some of the mythologies about there. But also understanding, because I think I've had an understanding with myself, and we've seen artists come in with all different 
ways that they organize their practice. And what's behind that is all different ways they think about their value and money. And mm -hmm. it's pretty complicated, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to, I think I can do the, I'm going to share my slides. Okay. So, um, so I do presentations for people that aren't part of uh, business people. And I always like to, to do, to show them this equation. And I usually do it as a quick thing when they have to guess true or false. But it's really important to understand that artists internalize a lot of information. That's why artists have really high levels of imposter syndrome um, and just bad thoughts in general. And one of them is that because they do not have money, it means that they're bad with money. And that's actually not true at all. But we associate uh, people that have money with being good with money. And that's actually not necessarily true. I think. Right now, we have a president who, by a lot of a lot of people's analysis, actually has a lot of money, but isn't necessarily that good at business and that good at money. So um, I think it's really important people who aren't artists to understand this, especially people that I was always trying to convince to support artists. Was like, no, if you give an artist a grant, they're going to be so much more responsible with that grant than an average organization. Mm. They're lean and they're mean and they know the value of resources, and because what that money is going towards is the most important thing in their world. Mm. It's the most important thing, which is their their practice and what they're making and what they're trying to do in the world. So I always sort of started with that, and so I think it's important to remind ourselves that just because we don't have a lot of money does not mean we are bad. Because we live in this capitalist system, where how much money you have is supposed to be some sort of equation to how much value we have. And I think that's so baked into the way we think that it's it's like the oxygen we breathe, that it's really challenging to step outside of that. And we internalize that. I've internalized that. There's all kinds of ways we internalize that. And to understand that there's all kinds of value that people bring. I think probably the example I use because I think a lot of people can relate to it, teachers, right? Like everyone understands the value fundamentally of teaching and education, and everyone who's in their child in school understands the value of that teacher. And yet we know those teachers do not have money. Mm. Somehow, though, we still that that idea is in, we still can't fundamentally change that equation for teachers. That somehow their money starts to equal their value. For artists, it's really important to always remember value is usually greater than your money. That's just always going to be the equation. Because we do not have a marketplace system for art that could ever possibly value the art in terms of what its value is. Because it holds all of this value to us in terms of it, right? It holds all this value that is subjective. And so it's, it's really hard to ever make that equal. So that the value, the true value of a piece of art is reflected in how much money it can be derived from that. So artists, of course, kind of out of the gate know that. So it's always important to understand where your value is at, right? Is going to be greater than the money. However, there's this thing called the, the passion tax, right? Mm. There's this bad equation out there that, well, you'll do it for cheap because you love what you do. As if loving what we do and how we spend our time and how we work and what we make is, is somehow money in the bank. 
it does not. So I think it's understanding what our value is and that it's never gonna it's never gonna equal. And that's why there I think there's a lot of embittered people out there who think who look at other people usually and artists are terrible uh, and can be really judgy and really um, envious of artists who they see have this greater amount of money and they think theirs should equal more. So part of it is about understanding your value and how much money that can bring in, but also understanding that how much money you need is completely up to you. And that's based on all these other things you know, right? And what for your life. So there's no cookie cutter, there's no model. It's not like capitalism where there's this end game where the goal of every startup business or every entrepreneur is to increase the value of it in terms of money. For artists, it's about asserting your value so that you can build that practice and keep making that work. And that is to get a point where there's enough money there and however you construct that, that you can keep making that work and sustain that practice become better and produce more. So the other thing we I run into a lot, and it's, it's so different talking to artists about money. It's one of the most personal conversations you can have with an artist. And part of this is that because we carry a lot of feelings about money. We think about money as this really abstract, really clear thing. And so I think it's important. And I think it's worthy uh, I see you have that book there, you're writing notes, you're making notes yourself, to later on, even today, or at some point, talk to yourself about how you feel about money. Talk to yourself about how those feelings affect the way you manage that money. And then think about where your ideas about money came from. So I'm going to share, I'm going to share my own sort of outline of this for me. And it took me a long time to realize this because like I said, in a capitalist system, it's just there. It's oxygen. It's this, we, we've taken all these lessons. We don't necessarily question them. And sometimes they work worse and sometimes they don't. And part of that is based on how we were taught to think about it. So my genetic is that I had depression parents. My parents both grew up very, very poor on dirt farms in southern Missouri. Whether the depression just had very... Uh, a lot of privation in their childhood. And a lot of unhappiness that comes with that, including a certain amount of, um, I think my, my grandfather made a question later on, it was explained to me, you know, experienced um, sort of uh, traumatic stress. And while there was no money or no mechanism that he would have been institutionalized, he was for my period was literally not able to function. So this was the dust bowl. So all of the experiences really formed my parents. And then they were, that led right into the World War II era, where because of their age and where they were, they were both denied the ability to go to college. So that sort of laid their, that laid the track for their life. But then they went from scarcity to abundance. My father invested some money along with a couple of other guys, uh, some family money. They all borrowed money from different members of their family, and they bought this bowling alley. I grew up in a bowling alley. And they actually got into that market like in the late 1950s, 60s, right as it was ramping up. And they did really, really well. And they grew this really successful business. And eventually they 
they divided it up, and there were other things that were just the business ran and was uh, provided for my family for 15 years, and also provided for a number of other families that worked for my father. And some people have Russian-era parents who are very frugal and afford the money because they have this intense fear of losing it and not having and returning to that place of deprivation. My father was in World War II and came very close to being killed, and his best friend was killed next to him. My father developed this idea that life is very short, and he was very lucky to be alive, and he didn't want to forward. He wanted abundance. He wanted to live the life of abundance. His number one priority was sending his five children to college, which he did, and then he wanted to travel, which he was able to as well. So once again, they were very formed by this, and they went from scarcity to abundance. So it put them squarely in the middle class, maybe even upper middle class, depending on how you define the term. The area where I grew up, right outside of Kansas City on the Kansas side, small community, uh, with not a lot of wealth in it. So I, I, I felt like I wasn't healthy, very privileged um, young person growing up. So that also affected everything about me, right? Importantly for me, money was always available. Right? I never saw my parents not be able to get something that they deemed was important or that they needed to get. We went on vacation. We went, um, we always had to get clothes. I was the only girl out of four boys. I had way too many clothes. My mother liked to do that. And we all got an education, and that was available. I didn't have to take out student loans. My parents didn't want us to go into debt. They wanted to pay for that. So money was always available to me. And I, I understood very clearly that hard work also was how I got that money because my father put in 60 plus hours a week and my mother ran a household with five children and we did everything. We were involved in everything and this was, this was indeed a full-time job for her to manage this household. But later in my life, I also realized at some point that my parents, when they sent me to college, really didn't care that I went into the arts because in their model, in their era, they were pretty sure I was going to marry somebody who would take care of me. So it didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter what investment I made in my education. I was going to be taken care of. So they let me get a theater degree. And then the joke was on all of us because I married an actor. Mm-hmm. And that just didn't work out. And so I think they were very distressed of this. Because what do you want for your kids? You want them to do better, right? Every generation wants their kids to do better. And a lot of my family actually went into um, the helping profession, had a lot of teachers and healthcare workers. Because if you go back, that money was available. And what my parents did with it was they gave back a lot to the community. My mother was very active in community work. My father served on the school board. They really believed that when you get lucky that you owe it to give back. So that was the other lesson I learned. So then we all get pushed into adulthood. We know that we have to work hard. We believe you should give back, but suddenly money is not necessarily available. Because what I didn't understand about my parents' deal with money was that they had taken out a, a huge amount of risk at one point. They had, they had four kids at that point. They had bought a house and a piece of land, probably too big for them, but they had this big family and they wanted very particularly this amount of land for us to grow up and roam around in money. And they went into this business, right? They didn't know anything about it. My dad didn't have a college education. And they took this huge risk. 
And over the years, they kept taking risks. If you run a bowling alley, you have a lot of capital costs, right? So you have to take out huge amounts of loans. So I do remember my parents always being a little stressed because of the amount of loans they always carried in the bank. What they didn't really teach us, because they wanted us to live this life of abundance and not having to worry about money because of their housing, was we didn't know how to take risks and we didn't know how to make it ourselves. Mm. So none of us did what they did, right? None of us really went down that path. So I'm just telling this story because I've looked at it in terms of how it shapes the way I approach everything about money. And it also can lead me to think about it differently if I understand how I develop this way of thinking about it. So that's part of the story. Part of the story about how we think about money is our past and how we were raised and our influences. The other part had to do with this funny little part of our brain called the insula. And the, the best way to describe the insula is the insula is the only part of the brain that can register disgust. So for example, one of the things insula does for us is that if we get food poisoning, that little part of our brain will remember everything about that food poisoning incident, including what we ate and where we ate it. And it will remember it for almost ever. So that we may not know what food that we got poisoned from, but we know not to go back to that restaurant ever again because that's what happened. So it's this sort of protective device. So they've done some consumer studies. So because part of what we know about how people are with money from an emotional basis is that we can divide the world into savers and spenders. So I'm just going to ask you all, who considers themselves a saver? And what I mean by that is that you actually really get off. You get emotional pleasure from saving money. Candace, did you raise your hand? I thought I did, but then you defined it, and I was like, let me put my hand down. I really love spending. <laughs> okay, right. And then, of course, the other one is people who get a real emotional response from spending. And that is... That, that's like inside of our brain, and, and that has to do a lot with how we experience things, right? With including the feeling of disgust. So going back to my parents, there was every chance that their brains could have been formed in one of two ways growing up with the extreme deprivation they grew up with. And one is that they could have been these hoarders. They could have been all about saving the money. Or they could have grown up, they could have developed into these people who really enjoyed the emotional satisfaction of spending. And they were the latter. They really enjoyed spending. Of course, I think it's connected to the other thing the insula does. <laughs> it's kind of where a lot of um, maternal love is and response to like babies crying happens in that part of the brain, right? So real strong emotional center of the brain. So as much as we think about money and finance and how we construct these lives and practices as being this really sort of black and white thing on paper, it actually involves a lot of feelings that we have. And I think with anything to change our behavior or to change the way we think about it, we have to acknowledge the feeling. So I think, Candace, probably what you were saying is that cognitively, you understand the value of saving. Like you can look at that as, a, as on paper and say, no, you need to do this. But you still, you still have to develop behaviors around controlling that emotional response to spend. Absolutely. Now, on the other hand, I'm sure you all know people that got all the emotional kicks out of the baby to the point where they lived a deprived life mm -hmm. or to the point where they hoarded their money and didn't do anything for their family or the community. And so that it also will go to that. So what I'm saying is that it's complicated how we think about our money 
because it comes from these external sources and experiences, but it actually sort of develops deep inside our brain. The tool is kind of deep inside. So in general, and I really, I, I, I uh, eavesdropped a little on the conversation you were having before, um, and the word about the word risk and invest and cushion, and I think the way we need to think of it, because the way I think back about my own family is that um, at some point my parents did this high risk, high reward behavior, and and you know what they won. It was awesome. It was amazing. Right? Until the operating environment changed, but that's a whole other story. Because the other thing you need to understand about yourself is what is your ability to risk? What is your capacity for risk? So I read this really interesting article years ago about high-stakes poker players, and I used to work for one. He was he's actually my mentor. I worked for a guy who ran nonprofit arts organizations by day and by night and on the weekends. He was a high-stakes poker player. And high stakes poker players come in all shapes and sizes and backgrounds. But the one thing they all have in common is they're willing to take on this huge amount of risk, right? They're willing to ride this roller coaster of being way up and way down. And that's just who plays poker. That's just who's good at playing poker. Because if you don't have that one, there's no way you can go into these tournaments and be good at it and bluff and risk being up. So you can think of all other examples of in society who are involved in these high-risk, high-reward endeavors. And I have to say, lately, just this year, I've engaged in some high-risk, high-reward, and, you know, the body chemicals that get released when you're <laughs> are really great, right? Um, because part of the reward is risk. But in general, to get through the day is to think about what you're doing that has low risk but high reward, because that's going to form some kind of core to what you're doing and to look for those opportunities. Because the other thing about artists that's different from other business people is that high risk is already baked into what we do. Making something out of nothing, staring at a blank screen or page, walking into a studio and starting at the beginning is a very high risk endeavor. So I think artists do have capacity for high risk and understand that, which means we don't need to add any more risk than we can actually take on. And we see people who get themselves into trouble because they take on this risk. And sometimes they take it on because they're desperate. And they feel like their only option mm. is to just throw caution to the wind. Sometimes that can happen because of someone's age. They have nothing left to lose. They have to make something happen fast. So sometimes there's a feeling of desperation. Sometimes they um, see someone else do it. Because you see over there at the end, really sad case, that's the high risk low reward. And we see that a lot. We see people who think, I've got to do this sort of a desperation, sort of a Hail Mary. Mm -hmm. So here's an example. I just worked with an artist who is, is a sort of in the late stages of her career. Some people aging, I include myself in that group. It becomes very, it starts to feel very desperate. You don't have retirement, you haven't built up a lot of assets. You may have responsibilities for taking care of your own parents, these other things. And so they're looking for these high risk, high reward things that they can do. So I have a friend who is a, who's a facilitator for artists who does art, art things, right? And she's done this for 20 years. And she's very successful. It's not her only source of selling her work. She has gallery representation. 
gives a lot of collectors she builds up over the years. But she does do four five of significant larger art fairs in the country. But it also matches her own way she's constructed her life with her and her husband. They love travel, so they take a camper and they put their kayaks on top. And on the way to art fairs, they you know will spend a week in the woods or kayaking. Right? It's this whole this whole beautiful thing they feel for themselves in, in mixing in these things that they love and value with how they make their money. And so this artist sees them, sees this, this woman who does this successfully, and says, that's what I need to do. Well, she says two things. First of all, she needs to start making abstract work because abstract work sells. Mm. And she says, I need to do art fairs. Well, before she does any research, before she does anything in terms of really understanding how to do art fairs, and one of the things about art fairs is it's physically grueling work. It involves travel, it involves setup, it involves hours. You are not having someone else represent your work. You are standing or sitting in a booth for three or four days at a time, and you are interacting with the public. All of these things she didn't really understand. And, and so but what did she do first? She went out and bought a really expensive, really heavy tent. Mm. And it, it was it, we got so sad about it because, first of all, she didn't need to buy that tent. Like, she just couldn't think any of this through and didn't understand what the risk she was taking. And when I talk about risk in that way, I mean, what's the risk of suddenly doing this thing you've never done before at an age where you have to learn this whole other way of being as an artist, this whole other way of selling your work, and you have to take on a lot of physical challenges that you may not be prepared for. So sometimes what we tell artists, if there's something like that, that you think you want to take a risk, and it's high risk, but you think that's the way you should go, we borrow this, this term from the design thinking work called rapid prototyping, which means don't go out and buy the tent. What she could have done was she could have asked Chris, the facilitator, can I come with you and sit with you or watch you put up your booth and maybe spend a day with you at an art fair in Kansas City, which is close to her, just to see if it was something she wanted to do. Somehow going into that space and evaluating whether or not the reward from that is actually, if you actually are calculating to the risk it's so I go back to the low risk, high reward, because the high risk puts you out there in the world. And usually when I see artists taking high risks, it means that in some ways they're trying to move to a space to please other people as opposed to pleasing themselves. Now, sometimes you can authentically think you need to take a high risk, but sometimes the low risk doesn't mean that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. It means you are who you are, and you are finding the space for that to work for you, both in terms of your life, your lifestyle, all the other things you value, as well as your money. So I think it's really helpful to understand. And of course, we haven't even talked about low risk, low reward, because that's actually probably a lot of, we see a lot of times, because artists will say, well, it doesn't require much. And this is usually the category where people give away their stuff. Mm. They give away their time. They give away their work and are not compensated and paid for their labor appropriately. Or they say yes to something that is like a step back or a step down or just literally moving in place. Mm. And they're not looking for this, the, the next thing. 
sure it's low risk, but over time, like what is that investment? Because that's writing things, the word invest, right? If you can invest money, mostly artists invest their time. And to be really clear and to think about your time as just like that resource of money and to always make that equation. And then the other you invest in relationships. And then I, well, I didn't get this much out of this, but I got these relationships. And you know what? Those relationships are so incredibly valued that I don't want anybody to ever like rank time, money, and relationship, right? They're all important and they're all interconnected. Okay, I'm going to switch off my screen so we can talk a little bit here. So, anyway, I just wanted to kind of frame our conversation with some things like that. Do you think about was any of that helpful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're listening to Invest Like an Artist, and here's a creative tip from Carl Jones. What's your medium? I'm an editor at Penguin Random House for young readers, and I'm also a writer and a storyteller. What's your tip? My tip is to say yes and continue. And I sort of say that in the way that improv comedy teaches us to um, go with the flow and to take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. Uh, I read this really great tip from Mindy Kaling a long time ago about just uh, saying that you can do something before you know you can. And then once you've committed to it, figuring out how to do it and do it well. And I think that those opportunities that present themselves can build you up to the point uh, where you actually are doing the thing that you love and what's in your heart of hearts. But you have to take certain small steps before you can actually get there. Where can we find you? Instagram's the best place. Instagram.com slash I am Carl Marx. That's M-A-R-K-S, not M-A-R-X. That's like the best place to find my work. Thanks. While we've got your attention, if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to like and or subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. It'll help us get the word out to other creatives and give them the information they need for the life that they want. So do you guys have questions or do you want me to? Um, I have a question. Go ahead. Could you give a scenario for what a low risk, high rewards thing might look like? Like what some people have done? I'm just having trouble picturing it. <laughs> Yeah, the sweet spot? Yeah. I will tell you that I think that the people that I know that have the most low-risk, high-reward opportunities are the ones who built it over time. So I'm going to, I'm trying to think, I should have had a really good example of that. So there's a culture here in Kansas City um, that he's, I mean, he's marketed to all over the world. He's very successful. He's an older gentleman. And he makes these, he makes bronze statues, basically. And he gets a lot of commissions, a lot of public work. But he figured out a long time ago that he spent all these hours, and I consider a lot of money too, right? It's, it's a there's a, it's a high materials cost practice. And so somebody would commission him, and he would make this whole prison and boom, right? Or he would just make something sort of on spec, thinking it would sell. Put all this labor into it. And he started to realize that all the value in that work of art was kind of this zero something, right? It either sold or somebody paid him a commission and then he had to start over again, right? So he started to understand that with each thing he made, he started, he described it as how many ways he could turn it to add more value monetarily to that thing. Could he make a print of that and sell those as well? Could he make whatever, 
different things uh, could he make smaller versions and sell them the idea is that the original vision and time it took going into that one work could then be monetized over time in this really low-risk way because he'd already invested a huge amount of time and, and, and money into making the original thing at once so that's one example the idea that you start to understand different ways that you can value. Here's another one. So we have a, a woman in Kansas City. She's her and her husband are part of this kind of antique jazz duo, uh, guitar and ukulele, and then they have a larger band. And they tour all the time, right? And they tour and then they play gigs. Well, so for DIY musicians, you know, it's it's pretty rough, right? You have to be on the road a lot. And they also decided they didn't want to be on the road as much because once again, they're getting older. Too. And she had to make a shift a couple years ago because what the deal is, they also had to go into debt when they built out the business because they both were doing different things. Her husband was playing in Blue Man Group in Chicago, um, and she was doing this, this whole different part of her career. She was doing actually commercial acting work, which was very lucrative, but she didn't like it at all. So they built this thing, they went into a certain amount of debt, and then they realized it was really not sustainable over the long term, and certainly not sustainable as they aged and as what they wanted changed. But they had this debt to pay off. So suddenly they looked around for, so they travel and they perform, but what else could they do while they were traveling and performing? And she started developing ukulele workshops. Mm. Unbelievable, right? She's already there, she's already playing her ukulele, and she developed this workshop which doesn't require nearly the same kind of effort, say, of songwriting or even performing, right? It also built this network of people because she'd done all these ukulele workshops. Mm -hmm. She found out she really enjoyed it. And they could actually charge a lot more for the workshop than they could for the performance. Right? So she, they took what they were already doing. So it's really low risk. It wasn't a lot of risk to develop a ukulele workshop because they already had the knowledge of how to do that. And yet the reward's been very high because now they've been, built, they've been able to build this in and charge people for it. And the conference will ask them to come do a ukulele workshop, which they're paid very well for. And then they can also pick up a performance as part of that conference or another one in the community or on their way, right? So they figured out these things that are outgrowths of work and effort and they're investing the time and money they're already putting in and ways to extract more monetary value out of that. Here's another part of her story. They, their need to pay down the debt and to get the debt off their backs because I think it's really crushing emotionally for them to have that she decided to get her real estate license and this is there's a couple of levels to the story so she was going to do commercial real estate right because she could do it on her own time she didn't have to do it full time and because financially you sell one property then you get this nice chunk and that money would then go off to pay off the sale well she went around with someone she did rapid prototyping called a friend who sold real estate and went around with her selling houses to people and realized she hated it. She hated that work. So instead she decided to get into commercial real estate, which is a whole different business. And she started shadowing some of commercial real estate. She decided she loved that. And that's what she's doing. They still travel. In fact, I just talked to her the other day. We were trying to find a time to have coffee. She's like, oh, we're not in town very much. We're going to Ireland in a couple months. Their thing is just rolling right along. But she developed these other things that truthfully She's a very charismatic, charming person. Um, no, it's not brainiacs who are getting real estate license, right? You just have to take the class and go through the thing. 
that was pretty low risk. It turned out to be really high reward. And high reward, not just monetarily, but high reward in that she can make that schedule work for her. She doesn't have to be in an office. She interacts with people, just like the ukulele workshop worked for her. She loved building that community that workshops build. It, it spoke to this whole other value that was related to her as a performer and a music maker, so that the reward was not just monetary, the reward was into this sort of full practice, right? So that would be the, that'd be a couple examples of kind of what I'm talking about there, to, to figure out what you're already doing and how to turn that somehow. And part of that is really getting in here and understanding what is the real value of what you do. And of course, I'm out there championing artists all the time. So I have this whole list of all the things artists can do that we take for granted that we can do. They are superpower. A lot of people in the world cannot do these. And it's a ways of thinking and being organized and taking something all the way from thought and vision to full execution. And trust me, there are not very many people that have that understanding of how anything works, that you can do that. You can take it from a vision to fully operational. This is interesting. So we reflect on these projects that we're currently involved in or could be happen, could be all that and see uh, what does it give us in time? What does it give, give us in relationships? What does it give us in money? Is it worth the time and effort? And then once you figure out whether or not it's worth the time and effort to do the basic thing, you can look into. So that's kind of like a profit and loss statement, but in like a multidimensional way. And then once you figure that out, you can figure out different pricing tiers, different, essentially a products page that says for this one thing that I'm doing, for this one event, for this one activity, how many more activities can this spiral out into? That's right. So it's not That's thinking right. about, oh, this is a painting, a, pri a pricing tier would be to do a smaller painting necessarily. It's thinking, this is a painting, a pricing tier is a print. This is a painting, a pricing tier is a workshop. Right. Because the smaller painting would take, like, I don't, I don't paint, but I, I'm just going to say they take just as much time as the big painting, right. just as much effort. So that's not a good pricing tier. Right. Right. No, uh, I worked with a, uh, a weaver a number of years ago, fiber artist. Mm -hmm. And she was working literally, in, it wasn't even in a basement. They had a small crawl space they had dug out where her link was. <laughs> and, and she was making these scarves. And she was selling them on Etsy, right? Mm -hmm. She was doing pretty well. And then lots of things had changed on Etsy. So this is the other thing. Sometimes the, the push to move this into another risk category is literally necessity because something in the operating environment changed. So Etsy changed in terms of the way people found things and also just the quantity of makers on Etsy from when she first got on there. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell people artists can control for a lot of things, but what you can't control is the zeitgeist, right? The spirit of the time, what sells, what people are interested in. So, but she had done a couple of commissions of larger wall works from her weaving. And so we talked about, so she was selling her scarves for about $150 a scarf, right? But the weavings, right, were thousands of dollars. And she had sold one to a children's hospital here in town. And, and she really loved the process of talking about it with them and where it was going to go and that it had these healing qualities. And put all, I mean, she just loved the process. But then she, when she broke down the hours, she figured it took almost just as much time to make the wall hanging as it did to make $150 a car. Mm. And she felt really stupid at that point, right? Mm. She 
she's like, what am I doing? I'm like, well, you're, you're gonna, you're, you'll always make scars. She likes to make scars, right? And the scars serve this other function, right? They can provide her some steady income. Plus, people wear them around. So I said to her, I said, just look at the scars as marketing tech. The scars are out there selling your work, right? They're selling this thing you make because people say, oh, that's really beautiful. You know, she was asked, this is another good story about the low risk, low reward. So she gets asked all the time to donate her scars to mm. charity events. Mm. Let me be clear. Arts organization charity events. If you, if we had time, I could do my whole 10 minute rant about that. That arts organizations ask artists to do that. But Debbie said no. She said no, this is the way I make the money. She has a, she has two small children. She was the way I support my family. And one of the women, who's from a very, very wealthy family in town, looked at her and was like, all of a sudden, like, no, well, of course you shouldn't ask her. I will buy the scarf, give right. her the money, and then I'll donate it to the office. Right. And right then, took off and said, no, this is how I feed my children. This is my value. This is my time. And someone else has the ability to, to, to make that contribution. And so it was just a really good thing of um, the power of saying no and setting that boundary is that people will respect that boundary more than you know. Can you talk more about that, setting boundaries and saying no? I feel like I if, think, if you have, if you're clear about your goals and you're asking yourself, does this contribute to my goals or not? It kind of, right. it takes the question out of it. It's no longer an emotional question. It's like, oh no, literally my goal this month is to make a thousand dollars that I didn't see coming at the beginning of the month and contributing in this way is is not gonna feed into that goal but also you could say something very empirical like i made it a goal at the beginning of the year to donate my time in these three ways and i've already done that so i i no longer have that responsibility because i've done it like it makes those easier for me to be able to say that that's actually a really good idea and you know what i mean i was a professional fundraiser for years i've asked a lot of people for money and a lot of wealthy people will say, no, I'm only doing these organizations this year. Mm -hmm. They set that boundary all the time and they have lots more, lots of money to give, mm -hmm. but that's just how they prioritize it. And I think probably because they're wanting to give bigger gifts mm -hmm. to fewer organizations. So that's a boundary actually that people in the philanthropic community understand a lot is, is making those priorities. I have found that usually but when an artist calls me and says, I don't know what to do. I've been asked to do this and I don't. They already know it's a bad deal. Mm. They don't call because if it was a good deal, they would have already just said yes and moved on. They know it's a bad deal and they want validation. So really, I just talked them through the process of how they think about it. So a woman in town, she uh, has a, she has a, she's a cellist and she has this uh, ensemble that plays. And they play actual concerts, but they also do society gigs, right? They play weddings and all these other things. And she called me because uh, we had something in Kansas we called Fashion Week. And the Fashion Week people had called her and wanted her ensemble to play at their opening event. And for absolutely free. So it wasn't just her. It was her ensemble. It was like three or four other artists too. Like, well, actually three other artists, the quartet. And what they told her was that it was good exposure because this room was going to be filled with all these people who could then book them for 
events and weddings and whatnot. So I said, well, this is how, this is your bread and butter, right? These gigs literally are your bread and butter. This is the money you know you can book three of these a month, and that's going to come in, right? Because there's always going to be an event, there's always going to be a wedding, and people are always going to be hiring you. Here's what you should ask them before you say yes or no. You should say, uh, well, who else is donating their time? Is the catering being donated? Is the liquor being donated? Are the people that are come set up in the stage and lights, are they donating their time? Because those are all critical elements of any successful special event. And if all those people are being paid, ask yourself, why are, why am I the one that's not being paid? Why is this where they're going to go? And I will tell you, because I've sat on the other side of the special event budget, of course they will take that to zero if they can. Because truthfully, they can't not pay for food or boots or people to set up the lights or the stage. Right? Those are hard fixed costs. The other thing I said, well, what they're telling you is the value to you is the people that you're going to be exposed to. Which, first of all, you're not going to be able to talk to any of these people because while they're having cocktails talking to each other, you're going to be playing your instruments. So you're not going to be networking, right? So you want their mailing list. You want their mailing list for that event to be able to follow up with everybody else. And then I said to her, they're not going to give that to you. Hell will freeze over before they will give that to you. That's hugely valuable. But they have set up the equation that you being able to connect to these people is, is basically what your compensation is. If you're not allowed to do that, then you walk away. And we just talk through the whole thing. So artists feel like they can't negotiate. And once again, because negotiation is about that, here's what I have that you want. Here's what you have that I want. Where's the middle? Where's that meeting? And I've seen artists make deals with themselves emotionally, right? make these qualifiers, well, okay, but I will be good, blah, 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 because they've done this, and then turn up, call me up and just are in tears the next time I talk to them because mm -hmm. it was worse than they even thought. Mm -hmm. So I tell artists, trust your instincts. You know what makes sense for you and what feels like a fair and equitable trade. And, and like I said, it's okay. You have a question now. Yeah, I was just wondering from the artists that you've worked with, if you have any examples from, so I, I'm a graphic novelist, which is more similar to like book publishing than to the fine arts field. So I'm just wondering if you have any examples of like low risk, high reward things that people have done around that field and that model of like commerce. Publishing. I'm, I'm going to have to think about that. I'm not sure I do right off the top of my head. Probably more, I probably work with more poets mm -hmm. than anything. Because I think we get, we probably have more poets, um, certainly that work as, as facilitators. What do they do? Uh, well, once again, a lot of this is about um, to understand yourself in terms of what are, what are all, what's the whole complement of skills that you have to have to do to make what you make. And what are the values of those skills out in the world? Not the whole thing of like actually, you know, writing a creating a graphic novel, but even the component parts of that. And how some of that can be atomized, right? Can be compartmentalized a little bit as a as a skill. So I mean, for example, like in my in terms of cartooning, like I'm also very familiar with like InDesign and Photoshop. Is that what you're talking about? Like like taking it down to that level? 
Sure. Well, well, sure. I mean, that, uh, clearly you have that technical skill, yeah. but I think I'm talking more about related to the creativity behind that. Mm-hmm. So, um, cards, greeting cards, right? One image with one message, right? Things that are, once again, can be pulled out of something else can be, if you look at that, how much time does it take, that pragmatic pricing thing, and how much time and resources it actually take to make that versus what it can be sold for. I think also, so here's an example uh, that I do have. There is a, uh, on the Kansas side of the, the, the city here, there's a large health foundation, and they have a big mandate in the county to build out these programs uh, around healthy families and healthy kids. And they actually developed this whole graphic novel style materials to appeal to young people and to families to teach them about all about this these, these health concerns, right? There are you are creating content. I'm sorry, tell me your name. Sophie. Sophie. Sophie, you're creating content. Just look at the con and you're creating content that ex- can exist digitally. So if you look at where we're at right now and all the ways that content can be used, so you can make your own thing with your own vision and what you're trying to communicate to the world. But you can also deploy those same skills to help other people communicate these things. Um, it was really extraordinary. It, was, it actually was an application for a social practice art pro- program I was running. The idea that this graphic novelist was making these materials that were about educating the community, right? It was basically about health inequities in the community and being able to put that in a way where they could disseminate that online. They could also put that out on libraries and they got grant money to hire that artist to do that work, mm-hmm. right? So that is one example that I just seen recently where that particular skill, because that skill is about communicating things literally graphically, right? Communicating sometimes complex ideas into formats that people can, that are more digestible. I also wonder about, um, since you, I mean, through this conversation, I realized that first writings are essentially kind of an art fair. They could be, but we're not encouraged to use them that way. We have a hundred million, I'm going to say, that's an overestimation, people filtering through these studios. Um, I wonder if like a snarky little magnet or snarky um, button or things like when people are like, no, I didn't come out here to buy a book. I'm not going to carry a book around, but maybe I'll spend on this magnet that like I can stick in my pocket. And every time I see that magnet, I think of you and it has your website on the bottom or whatever. Maybe the book sale comes later. So it acts as promotion, but also acts as a sale. A small sale. Yeah. I don't know. I have a question. So something back to the woman you were talking about who went from making scarves to doing these larger scale commissions. How did she connect to those commission opportunities? Was that a fluke or was that something she sought out? That's a pretty big topic. Well, you know, opportunity is the the, uh, intersection of luck and hard work. This is another thing I learned from my parents. My father considered him to be incredibly lucky. You know, I laugh now at these entrepreneurs who act like they're kings of the world because of what they made. My dad was like, there's so much luck involved. <laughs> and part of that is about a network. 
Frank and the people that he happened to meet along the way. So uh, that's that's when we go from investment time, money to relationships. Yes, I mean that's part of though uh, a person wearing to a board meeting at the Children's Hospital one of her scarves, right? That's part of getting this out and then taking advantage and sometimes, 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 sometimes it is a question of doing something for not the monetary value, right? And so this is a good story about her. So there's a, the local arts council runs this kind of horrible program called Now Showing. Basically, they're allowing companies to hang artists' work for and charging them very little money. And most of the money stays with the Arts Council. Very little goes into the artist's pocket. Um, but she was part of this program. But she got lucky in that one of the companies or organizations that was part of the program was the Ewing Kaufman Foundation. And they have this, this big national conference center. And they bring in all these conferences from people all over the country. And so her work was put up there. And it got a sale from someone living in Connecticut who was in town, right? So for her, she didn't get, she got $125, right, for that one venue for being in the program. It's just embarrassing to even say that an arts organization decided that's fair. But she ended up making the sale because it was the right venue, and she knew that. And also because that was the venue who cared about the work. Because there's something about textiles, right? People won't keep their hands off of it. Mm -hmm. Where they wouldn't touch a painting, they will go up and touch a fiber piece, right? Because they wouldn't touch it, right? It's a tactile experience. So her work was protected, and um, and she ended up getting a commission out of it. And then I think, um, you know, and then part of that long the long game is just constantly reconnecting with people that do that do know your work and do sell your work, um, understanding, and also understanding. And you can research the kinds of places that are buying this kind of work, the kinds of places that are building these kinds of collections. So inside these big institutions, there is somebody, there's a consultant or a person, usually it's a consultant now. Sometimes it's an actual employee of the company that is making these decisions and making these purchases. Because that's part of the flywheel thing. Once you get a few out there, then you'll get more calls. I wanted to go back a little bit to Sophie, your question, because all of a sudden I had a great example of psych. Um, Bill Schaefer in Kansas City here is a, is a graphic artist, uh, and he's a huge muralist. I mean, he's a... He's a big deal muralist in town. It's taken him 20 years, but he's built this both fine art and commercial mural business. When he started out, though, he was just making merchandise, right? He was he very came out of hip hop culture, and so he started making these stickers um, and just putting them everywhere in Kansas City. He still does this guerrilla marketing stuff with his graphic work, and now it's part of just constantly promoting his brand and his name so that he can work across all these platforms. But yeah, giving away like. What are you giving away that you can afford to give away? It's low risk, but somebody sees that and have an idea, and it's a way of keeping your name up um, and keeping your presence out in the world. And he's he has he has a slide in like all different places in town. He he built the sticker, so he has the slide where he put the sticker, and then he has a slide. And five years later, he got this huge commission um, from the city to do this huge like six-story mural on this building. In the exact same place where he had been, he stickered it five years ago on a whiteboard. That's super Great. cool. So I know we're running out of time. I want to ask you if you have some, if you have some rules for us to thrive by. Rules to thrive by. Keep track of 
how much money you spent every week. And really, and you can do it like you can do it one of those notebooks, right? We're not out there remodeling mansions, right? We know what we spend. Because sometimes it's hard to work with artists with money because they don't even know how much it takes mm. to just understand. Like, if it all got stripped down, what's your base? What's your baseline in terms of living? And presumably, in whatever whatever style you are currently accustomed to, because sometimes there therein lies freedom. Because I'll I'll share this kind of last story. Um, there's a bass player in town, and he's the best bass player in town. Right? He's known for that. When someone says bass player, they all talk about it. They all say Jeff. And he told this story. When 9-11 happened, he was a musician for hire on a cruise ship off the coast of He was on his cruise ship. 9-11 happened. Far from home. That night, the musicians all got kind of drunk on the cruise ship. And he worked with all these musicians that were pretty old. And they'd been doing this cruise ship work for years. They were looked like soldiers in the trenches, right? This was trench musicianship. You get up there and you play the same songs every night, but it was a good paycheck. And they, I guess they got to see the world. And he was far from home and he hated the gig. And he just said to himself, I, I don't want to do that. I do not want to be one of these guys. I do not want to live this way. So he came back to Kansas City and he was like, okay, how do I not do that? How do I make, what do I want this life to look like? And he decided that the problem when he left the city wasn't the problem, wasn't with the city, it was with the people he was spending time with. He wasn't working with the right people. He wasn't working with the people that shared his vision, what he wanted to do with music. So he changed that up. And then he just decided, I don't want to be the cruise ship musician. I don't want to just take the gig. I want to work on projects that have meaning to me. So he does it. It's extraordinary. So he has a part-time teaching job at the University of Kansas. And then these projects just show up and he creates all these projects. And people are kind of amazed at how he does it. And he will say two words to how he does it, and that is low overhead. Mm. Now, Jeff is an extreme case. We hear tales, we're not sure if they're the urban myths, but that basically he lives on peanut butter and bread. He has no significant other in terms of long-term relationship who might want other things. He has no dependents. He has no children. I don't know much about the particulars, but the point is, is that what he couldn't control for was the value out in the world, the market value of what he wanted to do. So his only thing to control was the other side of the equation. It's not a prescription, right? And most people I know do not want to live the way Jeff is. They just don't want to live. He was raised in the middle of Nebraska. They're, they're a hearty stock up there. Mm. But the point is, is that if you really sit down and look at where you're spending your money, what you're spending it on, and what you want, then you can start to create more freedom, less stress. Then you can start risking a little more. Because the problem is, is when you're right there with everything, you bring in, get spent, you've lost any capacity for any risk that isn't well, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You can't take risks at that point. The only way my parents could never raise this family and, and cobble together enough money for that initial investment, they had to risk borrowing that money, which meant they had to pay it back. Mm 
which is what, what made it high risk, right? Now they shared that risk with some other people, so that was smart. But still, it's it's really hard to find that place to be able to take the next step or take that little risk or jump if you don't control for that. And what I found is a lot of people just don't really know what that amount is. They don't know how much it costs them to make what they make. Right. When I met with uh, my financial advisor, JB, several years ago, I thought I was good with money. And then when I actually started tracking it, I was like, why does Burger King get so much of my monthly income? Because <laughs> it was stupid. It wasn't something I needed. It wasn't something that brought me joy, which are two of my rules now. Um, it either right. has to be a need or bring me joy or else why am I here at the dollar store? There's no reason to be here. Like deciding about a Snickers and I don't want the calories anyway. We also have at, here at Invest Like an Artist, we have a, a, a budgeting booklet that takes you through some of these like ways to do some of these things. And I'm a big believer in doing it by hand because when I do do it by hand, it's like an extra step of accountability versus doing it through an app, which like it's very easy for me to ignore apps versus the sheet of paper that's hanging on my wall, looking at me saying, okay, update me because you know you just bought drinks or whatever. And once I started doing that, it allowed me to play, play, play some jazz. Like it gave me room to play because it was like, well, if I don't spend $50 on Starbucks and Burger King this week, that, yeah. that means I can now do this other thing that really does bring me joy salsa dancing for five dollars and like i've saved money and done something that brought me more joy than the things that i i was doing so it it made me think about my habits and like the way i was living my life as well right and i'm actually reading the book atomic habits right now mm. which is talking about your goals are important but the way habits and changing your habits can, can really change things over time for you okay so i'm i'm, I'm I'm setting out to do some of that too. I'm like trying to test drive some of these things. And and I think a lot of things too with money, like I said, it goes all the way back to our childhood mm -hmm. and it becomes reinforced by all these factors. And then a lot of times it's just habit. And not to make anybody feel bad because you shouldn't, we are victims, right? We are victims at any moment of huge amounts of advertising and now algorithms. Mm -hmm. that are pushing us and shaping us to spend and place money mm -hmm. in these various places. Mm -hmm. So it's a struggle. So you said keep track of our income and expenses, maybe for our lives and also for our art separately. And we said, yes. you said know your baseline for living, know your baseline for your making your art and then keep your overhead low. So what is one thing that we can do today to, to get started to, to, to implement this strategy, to just be uh, more prepared for these kinds of thinking about low risk mm -hmm. and high risk versus reward and all that? Mm -hmm. I would, what I would do, uh, I think to find, for everybody to find their own baseline, so to look at those categories, like what are you currently doing and where, where does that fall? Are you, doing, are you spending a lot, how are you spending your time? Are you spending your time on these low risk, low reward things? Are you spending low risk? And when I say high reward, it doesn't mean you've gotten there yet, but potentially, right? And then is there anything that you feel like is high risk and, and 
potentially low reward. And like I said, this is calculation. Nobody knows the future. You're only sad making the risk when it comes out with a low reward. Mm. But you should be able to know from previous experiences if you're headed into that kind of thing. So I think because I've looked at this for a long time and like, okay, when is this? You know, and realizing that I think we get stuck in lower risk, low reward. That's the fear slate, right? That's when we're not sure. And I think that's also artists are in that space and they gap their own work. It's also the easiest, uh, most discernible path, I think. People are like, well, I want to be a teacher. What should I do? I want to be a writer. What should I do? And they give you the thing that is most provable for, for some kind of success. So you submit to publications. That's how you and so you go to a university. That's how you become a teacher. Like it's, it, it's these basics, but it doesn't encourage people to think beyond this predetermined path that, that puts you on a track that you can look at like 50 million people around you in the, in the US, they're on the same track. You know where they're gonna end up because they're all writing articles about it and complaining to the government about it. And you know, like okay. teachers need to be paid more, but they knew like ahead of time, where, like looking around where that path might end. And I'm not blaming anybody for that situation, but I'm saying it's an easy way to step on that path and not think about other ways to navigate the thing that you want in creative ways without without completely shunning the the path that has been laid for you, but also while creating this new path that might bring you more reward. Right. Yeah. So I think understanding, um, because I think it's, it's going to be, it's a mix of things, but I think it really is easy to get. I think the rut is the low risk, low reward. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and I think sometimes too, you know, we, we've never talked about like artists can have day jobs, a lot of artists have day jobs, mm -hmm. but, why you have a day job, what is a day job, how it relates to your practice. That's all important because over time, the day job will lessen the um, reward, right, of the whole practice. Because, like, nobody wants a job. I tell people, I love my job, but it's still a job. <laughs> all of us prefer not to have any job. We prefer to do our work. So, besides um, what I was talking about, the graffiti artist, he had a day job until last year. He had a day job at a local hospital at the graphic designer for 17 years. That was mainly his health insurance, right? Mm. That was not. So his level of risk, he did not want to risk not having that safety net. And of course, this was pre-Obamacare, um, right? So, you know, it, it would have been really challenging for him to maintain health insurance. I've always thought it was ironic, even though he worked for a hospital. But he, he had crafted that job, he had a lot of flexibility with it, he could take time off, and um, they were real supportive of him. But he just got to the point where, you know, he couldn't take the next step with his business because he literally didn't have enough time, mm. which was this happiness problem to have. But watching him emotionally go through giving that up, right, because that had become this group he was in and was very comfortable. And of course, since then, like great things have happened to it because the thing about giving up the safety net is it forces you to become much more aggressive, right? Mm -hmm. Forces you to become, it's the hustle, right? You just, you're kind of forced to re-vision re the world because you don't have that. 
So I don't preach against the day job. It depends on what it is. But understand that there's other things that we can get ruts into, not just the day job. And sometimes that is actually the work we make. So um, in terms of we're not going to take a chance on a new body of work or a new director. Mm-hmm. Even though what we're currently doing isn't renting us that much reward. Okay. So I have two more questions. One, you already kind of started answering this, but what book should we read to better understand how we should approach art as a business, ourselves as a business? You mentioned Atomic Habits. Are there other books that you have um, that you recommend? You all read Art and Fear? No. It's a very short book. I recommend it just because, especially with money, um, and because we talk about money and we talk about livelihood. I mean, these go to the thing that we value really importantly, like our health, literally our actual life, our partnerships, our relationships, our children, where we're able to live. We have a lot of artists now going into their time in their life when they have some responsibility to take care of parents, which of course is hugely important to be able to do that. Sometimes that means financial obligations, sometimes that means relocating. And I think to try to understand how fear is kind of baked into it at the beginning, but that keeping in touch with with what our fear is and pushing forward through that is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is just identifying it and talking about it with people who you trust, talking about it with people who, you know, you hold each other accountable for that and expect each other to be um, trustworthy with that. Because when people are vulnerable and trusting with each other, with art, when, when artists are vulnerable and trusting with each other, resources also emerge, right? Someone else has had that experience. Someone else knows of some way, some way to navigate that. Lisa, last question. Where can we find you? LisaCordis61 at gmail.com. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you all. It was great to see you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Candace. This was awesome. I hope it was helpful. Absolutely. Bye. Oh, bye. Disclaimer. Invest Like an Artist does not give finance, investment, tax, or legal advice. This is the start, not the conclusion, of your own due diligence. To read the full disclaimer, visit our website at investlikeanartist.com. This episode of Invest Like an Artist was recorded live at Magic City Books in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This podcast was produced by me, Carl Antonowitz. Our music was also produced by me, Carl Antonowitz. Please visit me at www.cantocomics.com. For more helpful discussion of finances for artists, please visit us at www.investlikeanartist.com.